The guys liked it anyway. There's popcorn in the back. Now, Bruce has been struggling. He's got issues. He's been struggling with his anger since I was a little bitty kid. I think he needs to get to the Joshua Center quick. Uh, and uh, this is a duh, but when Bruce Banner can't control his anger and he gets mad, his physical and emotional countenance changes. He is transformed from a calm, rational, peace-loving person into a giant green monster. So, what is a real-life 21st American, 21st century, excuse me, American example of someone being transformed into a monster? Well, I'm told, I don't know this, but I'm told that it happens thousands of times every day in America. Ordinary, other peaceful people, many of them Christ followers. In fact, there might be some in this room this morning. Let your unchecked anger, and you seem to think you have a license to do this on these little devices we carry around. Uh, Let your unchecked anger over political, social, and even religious issues turn you into monsters that post social media rants that look a lot like what the Bible, I believe, would describe as demonic fits of rage. What does it say in Matthew 12, 36? Anyway, I can't remember. Let me me try paraphrasing it. I think it goes something like this. We shall be held personally accountable for every word we post on Facebook or tweet or put out on Instagram. Is that what it says? Something like that anyway. That may be a loose paraphrase. The topic this morning, if you hadn't guessed already, is anger. Anger and conflict with other two people and taking offense. Jesus was clear in a prayer he prayed on the last night before he was crucified that he strongly desired unity and peace, at least among his followers. He knew there would be conflict. There was. Uh, There was conflict with the first two missionaries sent out from a church. And they had to split up and go their separate ways, Paul and Barnabas. He expects us, though... And even though we're fallen, we know there's going to be conflict. He expects and requires us really to be quick to forgive and to seek reconciliation. Complicated topic, reconciliation. We'll talk a little bit about it this morning, but not a lot. We'll get to our primary passage in Matthew 5 in just a moment. But first, let me introduce again the series that we're starting. Actually, restarting this morning. We started it a few months ago when we covered the Beatitudes. Uh, Remember, uh, it's Jesus' most famous sermon. I unofficially picked it up again, so this is really the third time we started. I picked it up again a couple of weeks ago when I was assigned being salt and light in Matthew chapter 5. That's at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes. Again, go back there. Jesus speaking to a Jewish audience on a hillside near a Jewish city called Capernaum. The hillside overlooks the Sea of Galilee. Remember, he has just taught them again about a radical new way of thinking, and he's promised incredible blessings to those who would participate with his Holy Spirit in literally allowing him to reprogram them and to reprogram us. It's called other things in other passages he shares, like in John chapter 3, he calls it a new birth experience. And he asked us first, if you'll recall, back to those Beatitudes, we'll, we'll just dwell on one for a minute. The first thing he asked is what King James Version 
refers to is, Jim, I want you to be poor in spirit. Let me put that in terms you understand. He's asking for an admission of my spiritual bankruptcy in yours. That's not a popular concept, again, in the culture. To put it in terms, in religious terms we've used for the past 2,000 years, he's asking you and I to begin our journey with him by admitting that we're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And then he's going to go on from that and then after the salt and light passage and a few more thoughts about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he's going to start six little mini sermons, and that's what we're going to be covering the next few weeks. And they're interesting. They're actually antithetical statements is the way he starts them. And some of you just said, what in the world is an antithetical statement? Let me give you an example. Here's the way he'll start one of these, these little mini sermons he does. He'll start out by saying, you've been told in the past X. Or, or the Pharisees and the Sadducees have told you X, but I tell you Y. And he's not saying the opposite of what God has shared in the past or even what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are saying. He's going deeper into the principle behind the rule of law that he's talking about. He's going to the heart of the matter. And he's looking for a heart change in each of us, in his followers. And so the first rule we're going to take up this morning, and that's what my assignment is, is one of those little mini sermons, is the sixth commandment recorded in Exodus 20.13. Jesus is going to talk about the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And he's going to explain the attitude that's behind it. And he's going to just say it in a few sentences, kind of through some stories about judgment and attitudes. And that's in Matthew 5, 21 through 26. That's where I'm going if you have a Bible or Bible app and you want to turn there. But before I go to 21 through 26, I need to back up one verse. Because this verse really sets the tone for the next six weeks. Matthew 5, 20. Jesus says this. Now again, put yourself on that mountainside. Become a first century Jew. Try to get into the culture and hear Jesus say this to you. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you'd been on that mountainside, there would have been a hush that had fallen on the crowd, an incredible sense of first century depression. The Pharisees spent all their time trying to keep every detail of the law. They had devised hundreds of rules, quote, to help you keep the law. They had hundreds of rules just about the Sabbath alone, what you could and couldn't do that weren't even in the Bible or in the law given by God. There was no way that an ordinary person could even remember all those rules, much less keep them. So as a first century Jew, when you heard the word righteous or righteousness, you would have equated it with rule-keeping. Jesus is talking about a completely different type of righteousness it is important to obey God's law I'm not making light of it but some of these laws that he's referring to and these rules were rules made by man he'll say later but again that's not the primary point this morning Jesus is going back to the heart and the attitude and he wants to give us a new heart that's what we're talking about that's what Christianity is all about a transformation, a rebirth, as he told Nicodemus in that mystical encounter that he had with Nicodemus recorded in John chapter 3 when he said, Nicodemus, you got to be born again if you enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus is talking here about internal versus external righteousness. The Bible is clear that the primary requisite, the first and most important thing to entering the kingdom of God, entering into salvation as we call it now and for eternity, is faith from our side of the fence. It's faith. Galatians 3.22, Romans 4.3, Luke 18.21-24, and lots of other passages in the New Testament. It is faith. Faith in what? Faith in the sacrificial and atoning death of Jesus Christ as a substitutionary penalty for your sin and mine. And mention that you can never be righteous enough to stand before a holy God and have him declare you, speaking in legal terms now, justified. But by faith you obtain the righteousness of Christ. So that's the first and most important principle here when we're talking about righteousness. However, and, oh well, let me say this before I go to the however. Make no mistake about something. Jesus is making a declaration of war in this passage on the Pharisees and the Sadducees' form of religion. He is. If you doubt it, go read Matthew 23 this week and see what he really thinks about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their brand of religion. However, now back to the however. The faith that saves it is very clear from the book of James, from lots of other passages, even the writings of Paul and Jesus certainly himself. The faith that saves should be producing in Jim and in you a hunger and thirst for practical righteousness as well. Our way of life ought to be evidence. It ought to point to the grace of God that we're embracing on a daily basis that we have in Christ. If you are, as it says in 1 Peter 1, truly, literally a partaker of the divine nature, if the DNA of God has been transplanted and stamped into you, then there ought to be fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control being more and more exhibited in your life as you go along. Another way of saying it is this. Okay, you're a romantic. You're not a lawyer. You're not a legalist. You don't like to think in legal terms. Jim, God loves me. He does. Let me put it in romantic terms. Go back about two or three hundred years. I say this maybe a couple of times a year. Maybe you've missed it. Maybe you've never heard this phrase. I love it. I love it. Go back to the first great awakening or the second great awakening. You might be asked this by someone on the streets when the Holy Spirit hung like a cloud over a village or a city you lived in. Have you been seized by the power of a great affection for you? If you have been seized by that power and that power is overwhelming you and you realize that the greatest lover in the universe is madly in love with you, then you'll want to honor him, won't you, by the way you live your life. If you want it put that way. Other related passages on the topic of anger, taking offense, forgiveness of others, and reconciliation in our relationships. Matthew 6, 14 through 15 is a verse I've been quoting a lot. I've been scaring some of you to death with it because it seems to be threatening you with hell if you don't forgive. Uh, I'm not sure that it's not, but I will give you a little out this morning if you look at the Greek. But let me just read the passage for you and let it sing in again. 
First thing Jesus says after he gives the model prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, at the request of his boys who said, teach us how to pray. First thing he said coming out of that prayer is this. For if you forgive men or women when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. You see, there's this relationship, and you're going to see it develop fully this morning. Every passage will have a hint of this in it. Between the first and second commandment, they seem to be symbiotic. The vertical relationship, it's the first and primary relationship and the most important, your relationship and your love for God. But closely tied to it and connected to it is your love for other people. And Jesus makes it clear here, forgiveness is like that too. Now, now forgiveness in verse 14 is the same Greek word as forgiveness in verse 15. And it has to do probably with relationship here. But verse 15, the scary verse, if you do not forgive men their sins, there will your father forgive you of your sins. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, and I mean it. I don't really want to know what that verse means. I don't want to experience at least what it means. I don't want to be certainly sent to hell. I don't think it means that. But I don't want to be disfellowshipped by God. I don't want to be outside the love of God. I don't want to be outside the experiential love of God, even for a moment much less for a day, for a week, a month, a year, or a lifetime, even if heaven awaits. I want to be in deep connection, in a heart relationship with God. So I need to forgive. So again, we're talking about anger, forgiveness, taking offense, and reconciliation this morning. Ecclesiastes 7.9, Solomon, a very significant sinner, by the way. He had some serious issues. I would say he would seriously be diagnosed as having sexual addiction issues if he were here today and being diagnosed. He's at the end of his life, and he's messed up a lot. He's worshipped other gods, but he's come to his senses, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he shares some of his wisdom in Ecclesiastes, and he says this, two things, don't be quick-tempered, and don't let your anger control you or be obsessive in your anger. He says it like this. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit. If it's possible, don't be quick-tempered. And then he goes on to talk about another kind of anger that stays with you, that resides in the lap of, and strong word here, fools. The lap of fools. I just realized I skipped the main passage of Scripture, Matthew 5, 21 through 26. So I'll go back and pick that up in just a minute. Uh, Proverbs 19.11, Proverbs 19.11, another passage of Scripture that says this. A man's wisdom gives him patience. So if you're really smart, you'll be long-suffering. You'll just overlook offenses. It's to your glory to overlook an offense, to just let it go. I'll tell you a funny story I didn't plan to tell this morning, but I told it last hour, and it went over well, so I'll try it again. I've got relatives of different types, but I have some Italian relatives that live in Chicago, and I love them to death. But we had a funeral for my aunt that was 80-something years old. It actually was a wonderful passing, and, and we went up there to have a good time. And at the after party, which was at an Italian restaurant, one of my relatives started acting up. And she got really put out by some minor flaw in the menu or something that had happened and would not let it go. So she was just going around spewing a bunch of anger, and it just went on for a while. My wife is pretty sweet most of the time, and, and she doesn't do things like this very often. When she does, it always is a gotcha. And uh, 
So she called her over. She said, Jane, come here. I've got something for you. She goes, what? I am. She goes, have you seen that movie Frozen? She goes, yeah. She goes, I want you to sing with me something right now. She goes, what? She goes, you know that song, let it go, let it go, let it go. I'm not doing it. That's what we're talking about in Proverbs 19.11. 1 John 4, 19 through 21. Don't worry, I'm going back to Matthew in a minute. I'm sorry, I forgot. We're just doing this out of order. Uh, 1 John 4, 19 through 21. Now, John's always the love guy. He's always saying sweet things. He describes himself as the disciple Jesus loves. A lot of why he writes is about love. No difference in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. What he's saying is a simple and profound truth. We can be grace givers because we are experiencing daily the grace of God. You should be. If anyone says, I love God, though, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. Why? Because Men and women are image bearers. Even though we are tarnished image bearers by our own sin and our own flaws and our sin nature, and we inherited back from our ancient ancestors, we have an even more ancient ancestor, God, and we were made in his image. So these mere mortals that you think you're dealing with don't exist. As C.S. Lewis says, these are immortals we're interacting with. They're made in the image of God. And the people were slandering and slurring and killing with our words and our thoughts. (laughs) They're the pinnacle of God's creative activity. And even though they're tarnished, if you say you love God, for anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And what God's saying here is, through John, is, hey, you don't like Tim? You're not going to like me either. Strange way of saying it. And he's given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's a command to love your brother. Ephesians 4, 26. Ephesians 4, 26. In your anger, do not sin. So it's possible to be angry for, anger is a normal human response sometimes. That's not sin. It's sin to just keep dwelling on it. Do not let the sun go down, practical advice, while you're still angry. And thus give the devil a foothold. So don't give the devil a foothold in your life by harboring anger. Last passage of scripture before we go back to the main text. Hebrews 12, 15 says this. Hebrews 12, 15. This is kind of the end game of where this thing can go. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. In other words, Jim, don't miss it on a daily basis. Don't miss taking in the grace of God. And if you're a grace giver, you're also supposed to be a grace getter. You're also supposed to be a grace giver. And that no bitter root grows up or springs up in you and causes trouble and defiles many. Another paraphrase, and poisons your relationships poisons your relationships. Don't let a root of bitterness grow up in you which will poison your soul and your acquaintances and your family and your friends and your co-workers' souls as well. Don't let it grow up inside of you. Now, back to the main text which I forgot to cover. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. I lightly exposed it and we'll talk about it in just a minute. You've heard it said, antithetical statement, 
that was said to the people long ago, do not murder. That's the sixth commandment. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's true. By the way, the Greek word for judgment in that verse is civil judgment. He's talking about judgment before the Sanhedrin or some Jewish court. And he's going to go back and forth in this passage between threatening civil judgment and threatening God's judgment or eternal judgment. He's doing it to be an agent of reality. But I tell you that anyone who is even angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. There, the Greek word literally means the judgment of God. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, we'll look at what that word means in a minute. It's actually a Hebrew word. There wasn't a good Greek word for it, so the writer just threw in the Hebrew words, what's called a transliteration. He's answerable to the Sanhedrin. That's the highest Jewish court. But anyone who says you fool, by the way, name calling in that culture was a terrible thing. It's not like today. This is a cultural thing. You've got to be careful here. You get lost in what I would call the cultural weeds of this. Don't miss the main point. We'll talk about it in a minute. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. By the way, hell means hell in that passage. That's what it means. Just thought I'd share, share that with you. Gehenna is what it is, is the word. It's referring to the garbage jump just outside of Jerusalem. It's their metaphor or their visual of hell. It was literally a garbage dump. So later in scripture when it says the worm doesn't die, it's talking about maggots, and the fires smolder or don't go out, that's what a garbage dump looks like. There's fire smoldering all the time, and there's decomposing matter there. It's worse than that, though. Several bad things happened in the Valley of Gehenna earlier in Jewish history. That's why it was a place that they literally thought of as condemned and hellish. It's where some of the kings of Israel literally sacrificed their own children to pagan gods. Gehenna is a visual of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift, in other words, if you're involved in religious activity, which he says, by the way, he's going to condone, he's not making fun here of religious activity, of giving at the Jewish altar. And remember that your brother has something against you. He's going to emphasize the importance of the second commandment and the horizontal relationships. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. You can do your religious activity later. First, go and be reconciled. There's that word reconciliation. There's a commandment to try to reconcile yourself to your brother. Regardless if you've offended her, she's offended you, Whatever the situation is, there's a duty put on you to initiate some form or try to reconcile. It's not always possible, but you're supposed to try. Then come and offer your gift at the altar. Now, verse 25 and 26, he's going to get very pragmatic now. He's just going to move away from the religious and and the principles, and he's going to say, oh, by the way, you got a lawsuit, and you're headed for court. You ought to consider settling the case. You may lose. And if you lose and there's a big judgment against you, back in that day and time, they didn't let you file bankruptcy or execute on your house or take your bank accounts. They threw you in this place called debtor's prison where you had to stay and be tortured and live there until your family was able to come up with the money to pay off the debt. And if they didn't, you died there. 
That's what he's saying here. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. He's talking about a court scene in the first century if you lose. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. He's just saying mediate your disputes. He got pragmatic there at the end. So thoughts and comments on all these texts I've read, particularly the primary one. Again, first of all, don't get lost in the cultural weeds of the passage, the whole debtor's prison thing, the various levels of first century justice, divine versus human judgment, and lose sight of Jesus' main points. With anger and murder, the offense is against the dignity of human beings made in the image of God. That's Genesis 1.27. He made them both male and female, it says in Genesis 1.27, in the image of God. Again, human beings are the pinnacle of God's creative activity. As David said, he said it in two places, and I'm going to combine it. Our sin has tarnished his image in us. But in spite of that, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Jesus is condemning the attitude of unresolved anger and promoting forgiveness and reconciliation. At the same time, Jesus didn't always use Potter's motivation, folks. At the same time, he is being an agent of reality, pointing out that there can be serious consequences in this life and in the one to come for not dealing with your anger and unforgiveness. Personal animosity is being condemned here, and radical righteousness is being promoted. Make no bones about it. Back to those Hebrew and Greek words. Raka, again, it literally means empty-headed or stupid. It's really more akin to our use of the word fool. Morose is the Greek word for fool that's used in the passage. It means apostate, morally depraved, an outcast outside the Jewish camp. It's the worst thing you could call a Jew in the first century. Our obsessive anger with someone violates Jesus' clear commands over and over to love one another. He's holding us accountable in this passage, not just for our actions, but for our attitudes. Paul says this, practical advice, and it's hard to do, but it's great advice. You ought to try it often. 2 Corinthians 10.5, he says this, take every thought captive in obedience to Christ, whether it's lust, whether it's jealousy, whether it's pride, whether it's anger, Whatever it is, when the thought comes into your head, don't own it. Take it captive and give it to Christ as often as it comes into your head, if it's sin. I'm going to quote now an extra biblical source, a great philosopher that if you're under 40, you won't know him, but those of us over 40 know him well. His name is Barney Fife. And he used to put it like this, just nip it in the bud. Kill it before it blooms into full rage or bitterness, as the Bible describes, and poisons your soul and poisons your relationships and owns you. The other New Testament verses I read, out of order, 
tell us that the status of our horizontal relationships, again, that second commandment stuff affects the status of our vertical relationship, that first commandment stuff. Now, the antidote. The antidote for unrighteous anger. And by the way, I know what some of you might be thinking. Jesus called the Pharisees fools. (laughs) He's God. And he can call people who are fools, fools. They call good evil and evil good. They live terrible lives. And his righteous anger was manifested over and over toward them, particularly when he threw the money changers, who were thieves, out of the temple. Be careful if you think you're exhibiting righteous anger. It doesn't take but a minute or two before it turns into unrighteous anger. That's been my experience with it. And yes, you can get upset about moral depravity, but don't focus it on the individual person. That's just a safe warning. But the antidote for unrighteous anger, taking offense and unforgiveness. Let me give you three simple antidotes, and then we'll delve in just a few minutes into a more detailed breakdown of one of them. Number one, I've already said it, experience Experience is not a curse word, by the way, folks, in evangelical Christianity. You ought to be experiencing God on a daily basis. Experience daily the grace and forgiveness of God by spending time with him, confessing your weaknesses, your sins, and your addictions to him, and embracing the grace of God on a daily basis. Drink deeply from the well that flows from the throne of God and the cross of Jesus Christ You have a right to do it. Drink deeply and daily from the grace of God. Number two, verbalize forgiveness of others to God and to them. Details on that in just a few minutes. Number three, pursue reconciliation with the person that you're at odds with, regardless of who you think's at fault. Now, before we get to the specifics on how to forgive, I want someone to come up here and share with us her story about struggling with anger and forgiveness of a family member. Val, where are you? Val Holmes is going to, excuse me, Val Holmes is going to come up here and share. And I'm going to ask her a few questions, and we've practiced this story a little bit. She did a great job last hour. I'm sure she will again. She's going to tell you her story. Val, you faced some significant challenges because of your family situation growing up. Why don't you tell these guys and gals a little bit about that? Yeah, so my mom had me when she was 17 years old. She was in high school, and my dad was a 21-year-old high school dropout, and they weren't married, and they weren't believers, and um, their relationship was already pretty rocky, but even before I was born, and after that, they tried to work it out for a little while, but there was just too much past hurt, and they ended on pretty rough terms, and at that point, my mom started her journey as a single mom. Okay, and... What was your relationship specifically with your dad like growing up? My relationship with my dad was interesting because when I was younger, I knew that he existed, but he wasn't a part of my everyday life. And I would see him for some seasons periodically once a week, but then there would be even longer seasons where we wouldn't hear from him. And those seasons could span anywhere from months to years. 
And I, when I was younger, I didn't think much of it because every time I would see him, we would have fun. And so I had a relatively positive view of him. It wasn't until I got older that I started to recognize that that wasn't how a relationship was meant to be and that I was actually really hurt and really angry at him. And um, really on my 13th birthday, when he forgot to call, I was devastated. And I looked at my mom and I said, I never want to talk to him again. And I chose in that moment to allow my hurt and my anger, and I completely cut him out, and I completely hardened my heart towards him, and cut off all contact, and cut off all emotion, and I chose to live in that unforgiveness and that bitterness for a really long time. Okay. So you got angry, Dad, cut off the relationship. What made you want to try to renew the relationship and get right with your dad or How'd you do that? Yeah, it was really only Jesus. Because at this point, I wasn't a believer. And when I was 15, that's when I started my relationship with Jesus. And he almost immediately started working on my heart and heart. And um, just these things that Jim is talking about, I, as I began to fall deeper and deeper in love with God and understand his grace and forgiveness for me, I couldn't escape the fact that I was still living in this unforgiving, bitter Um, completely separated relationship with my dad. And really, um, one of the first times that I ever even dove into the effects of that relationship and the hurt that I had was when I was a senior in high school. And I was asked to share my testimony at New Heights Student Ministries Winter Chill. And for the first time, really, God began that process in my heart of forgiveness. And um, I remember he gave me compassion for my dad, which is something I never thought I could have, and um, began to give me context into his life. And I learned that my dad was raised in an abusive home and essentially raised himself because he didn't have, his father was abusive, his mother was absent. And um, in that moment, I was broken for my dad to the point of tears and um, just realizing that he didn't know how to love me because he had never experienced love. He didn't know how to be a dad to me because he had never had a father in his life. And um, God really revealed to me in that moment that my dad was just as broken and just as much a sinner as I was. And um, in the way that God forgives me, he was calling me to forgive him. And it wasn't, that at that point in It had been six years since we had talked when I really started that process. And um, later in college, I had worked through a lot. I had gone to counseling. My friends had walked with me and loved me. And I had really dove into the hurt and dove into the choice to forgive. And I felt at that point later in college that I had really forgiven my dad. Um, But God was calling me to more because I still hadn't talked to him. It had been almost eight years by this point. And I fought him on it for probably two years. I knew that God was was calling me to reach out and to restore my relationship with my dad, or at least try to. And I wouldn't do it um, until two years. I found myself in a really dry season spiritually. I found myself really distant from the Lord, and I knew it was because I was being disobedient in this. And... The Lord, it was only the Lord that gave me the strength to reach out. And I reached out and we had dinner at a Mexican restaurant, me and my dad, about almost three years ago. And um, you guys, God worked in my weakness and God did this reconciliation that I didn't have the strength to do myself. And 
the Lord totally worked in that and gave me the ability in that moment to love my dad, first time ever, and gave me the ability to share my heart with him and to ask him to forgive me for the ways that I had treated him and to share Jesus with him. And um, God even spoke to me before this dinner. I was engaged at the time, and the Lord said, I want you to ask your dad to walk you down the aisle. It was leading up to this point, you know, he wasn't in my life, like, he didn't deserve to walk me down the aisle, you know, um, but that's the glory of the gospel, and um, when I asked my dad, he just completely broke down, and he was vulnerable with me in a way that he's never been with anyone, and he told me how much shame he felt and how unworthy he felt, and that was why he never reached out to me, and how dark and depressing his life was, and um, it was the sweetest reunion I could have ever imagined, and um, I know that God gave me a new heart and is still giving me a new heart in regards to my dad. So how's your relationship with your dad today? So today it's still not perfect, but I am just so thankful. And even this morning is a sweet reminder of all that God's done. And the fact that I'm even in relationship with my dad, we see him probably once every couple months. And I hope that that continues to become more frequent. He's not the best at reaching out or calling still. You know, he hasn't necessarily changed, but God's changed my heart and is leading me to continue to forgive and is leading me um, to continue growing that relationship. And um, personally, just the amount of freedom and breakthrough that I've experienced since allowing God to give me the ability to forgive and to reconcile is something that I can't even describe to you all. And um, I would choose it again and again, even though it was the hardest thing in a lot of ways. But Let's give this gal a big hand. Thanks, Val. Okay, I promised you uh, an expansion on one of those points. So here it is. It's inside your bulletin, and there's an insert. I asked you to pull it out. Dr. Ryan Reina is the head of the Joshua Center. And Ryan uh, wrote up a little thing that's on one side of this. And let me just summarize that for you, what it says. It's a simple principle. God, because he's God, and because of what Jesus did in fulfillment of ancient laws that required him to sacrifice his son, has the capacity to forgive you when you come to him by faith. Right now, right then, and set it aside. You and I are human beings. We're flawed creatures, even though we're made in his image. We don't always have that capacity. Some of you, it may be easier than others. Maybe you were born that way. I don't know. Maybe life experiences have been different. But you're hardwired. And you're, and, and, but some of you, and even some of us who it's easier to forgive, if a serious offense comes against you that has life-devastating consequences, it's very difficult to just say one time, I forgive Sue, or I forgive Tim, or I forgive someone if, if it's been a particularly grievous offense and affected your whole life. And so that requires a process, something you may have to fight with maybe for the rest of your life. But there's a tip sheet on the back of how to do that. And this is what I want to read through real quick. It's the forgiveness process. It goes like this. And by the way, this is not just Ryan saying this. Dr. Neil Anderson, this is something in his steps to freedom in Christ. Ryan's just done a really good job of putting it in detail in a list so we can all see it. Identify the wrong, the debt you think is owed you or the injury. Don't deny the pain. Be specific. Number two, 
Identify and make a list of all injuries from this person, if applicable. Number three, inventory every aspect of the effect of you on you. List all the offenses and their effects, especially the emotion or the heart impact. Be thorough. This inventory is not about you keeping an account of wrongs. It's about you releasing those wrongs to God eventually. Number four, invite God or Christ into the place of hurt with you. Acknowledge that he's there and acknowledge the pain and grieve with God. Sitting with Christ in places of hurt, sharing your pain with him and your heart with him is a sacred privilege you have. Take advantage of it and do it. It produces healing and tremendous spiritual growth. Number five, evaluate and address anything else you might be holding against the person. If you come up with something, repent, release judgment to God. Put them on God's hook and take them off your hook. All it'll do if you keep them on your hook is just consume and destroy you and poison your soul, as the Bible says. Forgiveness is not complete until you've dealt with all the issues. Number six, as an act of your will, choose to forgive. And it's very important and it's highlighted. Read your list out loud so that every demon and angel in the room can hear it, so that you can hear it, and we know God hears it. So say it out loud. Say, I choose to forgive Bob for, and then describe in detail what Bob did to you. Over every item on the list, eight, ask God to help you forgive them from your heart. Number nine, ask God what steps you take. Maybe pragmatic steps in this forgiveness process. Ask him if there's anything else you need to do to release the person, be released from this process. Number 10, repeat this daily or regularly until you discern that you're released as long as it's necessary. Pragmatic tips. Back to the three simple antidotes for anger, unforgiveness, taking offense. Number one, daily go and taste and see that God is good and wallow and experience the grace of God as you confess your weaknesses to him. Pray. Make it a habit, a discipline in your life. Confess your sins to him. Read his scripture and reflect on them. Number two, forgive other people. The process I just went through. Express that forgiveness to God out loud and tell the other person that you forgive them. Number three, pursue reconciliation. I know that's different in different circumstances and I don't have time to go into all the possible ways to do it, but pursue reconciliation in appropriate ways. I'm done. Communion is available around the room this morning. Again, we take it to remind ourselves of what I'm preaching about this morning. The very power that gives you and I the right to do this is the broken body of the Son of God broken for you. We take it like the early church did to remember his sacrificial death for us until he returns. The way for his body, the juice is blood, a reminder of the cost of being reconciled to God and the high price of your lover paid for you. The prayer team, if you'll come on up, start on up, is available around the room. If you want to pray for someone, this is ministry time. We're a weird church. We believe this stuff's still okay. If you've got a word from God for someone and you want to go minister to someone, go do it. It's your time to do it. If you want to be prayed for, the prayer team's available. Come and be prayed for. You can engage our great God in worship. Also, we're going to take up an offering so that we can continue to do the good 
good things that you allow us to do as a staff for the people of this church, for Fayetteville, for Northwest Arkansas, and the world. I ask you to give sacrificially and promise we'll do the best we can with your money and your resources. We need it to continue to do good. We're going to take up an offering. Offering, worship, communion, and prayer, a ministry time. They're all available for you right now. Let's stand and engage God in worship.